Welcome to episode 335 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is your host, Chris McClung. We've got another episode today with James Dodds joining me, but we're interviewing a former Rogue coach and someone who has gone on to make a career out of running in wearables. And his name is Jeff Knight. Excited to have him on because he's been a while since we've caught up. But we're going to dig into the science of running in wearables and talk through how to think about using them in your running world, both the do's and the don'ts. We will get more into Jeff's background, but he's a scientist by training and education. He is a running coach and is now deep in the industry of wearables. So he's got the perfect combination of skills and experience to bring to this conversation. And I'm excited to chat with him and bring him on. So we'll get to that in just a second. Before we jump into our conversation with Jeff, I want to quickly thank my sponsor for this episode, Run Jonji. They're a great partner of mine, have now been for six months, and I'm loving their gear, especially as the seasons turn and I can wear more of it. I'll give you an offer code and talk more about my partnership with them mid-episode, so stay tuned for that. Okay, let's jump into our conversation with Jeff Knight on running and wearables. Here we go. Welcome, Jeff Knight, to the Running Rogue podcast. Jeff, it is so good to have you on and see you because it's been too long. How are you? It has been too long. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me on to uh, chat uh, on this uh, lovely Monday morning. It's great. And we've got James joining as well. James, how are you? I'm doing well. I had a lot of fun at ACL this weekend. ACL, which is Austin City Limits Music Festival, for those that don't know, it's two weekends a year here in Austin, and it was that time of year, and it ended up being a perfect weekend for it. Yeah, perfect weekend for long runs, perfect weekend to get out. Noah Khan was the show for me. He's on the rise, and he delivered. I don't know Noah Khan, so you're going to have to give me just, give me and the listeners a quick little music t- plug on Noah Khan. Uh he's from the New England area. He's definitely like big on the strings. Um he jokingly said that he's been uh referred to as the Jewish um Ed Sheeran and the crowd got a nice laugh out of that, but he's just got some deep meaningful lyrics that um has a little bit of banjo in there. He's definitely big on the strings, but he brought like a he's similar category I would say as the Avett brothers who are my favorite band. Um, but gosh, he just has a way of putting lyrics together that they hit. And then of course I love that string sound. So, but he brought his rock and roller side a little bit. Like he really jammed out at ACL. I kept thinking, I can't believe he's given us that much. Like he, he just (laughs) played his heart out. I was like, he could have phoned it in. He could have done anything, but he chose to just go all in. There you go. Music tips for, from James. That'll be our spinoff podcast. So, Jeff, I'm assuming you weren't at ACL. I was not. No ACL <laughs> for me. But, taking yeah. care, taking their, care of the kids, I'm sure. You know, this one was one where it was a little bit of like, wow, it's such a nice weekend. I wouldn't mind being out there. But, you know, there's also this thing called Hulu where they stream Austin City Limits, which was pretty great. Too. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> The, uh, the parents. Version. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Okay. Cool. Well, Jeff, 
as I mentioned in the intro, Jeff used to work for our Rogue as one of our coaches, as well as our training director. He basically wrote all of our core curriculum for many years back in the day. How long has it been, Jeff? When did you leave Rogue? It's been a while. It's, I was thinking it's been a little close to eight years or so, because I think I left in August of 15. Yeah. So yeah. Crazy. Over eight years. Time flies. So, <laughs> so I want to go back, get a little bit on your background and then the, and your resume, so to speak, for this topic. We're going to be talking about running and wearables. And Jeff is has been deep, especially from a career perspective in wearables over the last eight years since he left. But prior to that, how did you get into coaching with us? Give us, give us the full background. Yeah, I'll try to keep it brief because, you know, once you're starting to talk about yourself, it's, it's, like <laughs> just, it's really great to just go on and on for a captive audience. Uh, no, you know, so I, I got, uh, I'd say my, my interest in coaching and wearables uh, it, it's hard to tell exactly when these things start. Uh, my my family was very into athletics growing up, and so that was kind of always there. But you know, in a way that you know, fitness and sport was just normalized. It was just like a, a way of life. It was not something that was out of the norm. And I think a lot of people have that experience. Um, and you know, then you grow up, you go to you go to college, or you start growing up, go to college, you start experiencing things and you know you have these like really standard paths that people lay out for you if you are interested in science or anything mathematic and it's like oh you should be a physician or you should do whatever and so you know you explore those routes a little bit and then you you also experience other things along the way so um you know at at that point in time I was like well I, I don't think I really want to go the medicine route but I still like this this path that I'm on of of science and thinking oh that was pretty interesting um, so after uh, uh, undergrad I, I went to grad school and uh, down here in Austin that's how I wound up here in Austin and in the the local rogue community not the broader rogue community but the local one here and um, and I was doing biochemistry and um, did that for a while and was like this is there's parts of this that I really like. And then there was parts of it that I just didn't like. It's a, it was a very kind of isolating field. Uh, a lot of time in the lab, a lot of late nights, a lot of time with bacteria, which are not the most you know, interesting of people. But um, as, as throughout this process goes, um, as any grad student in the sciences will tell you, they, they, or as any grad student in the sciences will experience, you do a lot of undergrad teaching, you teach a lot of labs. And uh, what I started realizing was like, wow, I really like the people side of this. I like the sort of, you know, teaching element of this and was, you know, had this sort of bug placed around sport and fitness had been active and had continued to be active throughout undergrad and grad school. So started exploring a graduate degree in uh, sports science at the University of Texas and uh we had a had a uh, professor in the biochem side. My my PI was supportive of me transitioning over, so I finished up my biochem degree, moved into a basically an applied field uh, or a, an applied program at, 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 at in, as part of the the sports science program. So um, spent some time in the lab and was got to hang out in the uh, human performance lab 
uh, there at the University of Texas. And uh, we had an opportunity to play with a lot of new wearables and things at that time that were coming out. And, you know, this was over 10 years ago. So what was cutting edge at that time was not really that cutting edge. I, you know, GPS was just starting to become a mainstream thing as in terms of fitness tracking, not obviously from a, a broader standpoint, but from a, a small enough form factor, you could track fitness. Uh, but we saw all sorts of stuff. We, we played around with, you know, anything that you could think of that was going to be kind of in this space we now take for advantage or take for granted or, you know, from heart rate tracking and so on and so forth. But during that time, also still kind of had that pull, that feel uh, towards teaching and, and really like that side of it. And I can remember one day, you know, kind of going, gosh, what am I going to do with myself as I approach the, this point of graduation and going, I've got to get a job here. And uh, I was reading the, the Statesman. Uh, it's a newspaper. If you, if your listeners will remember, there are these like big gray sheets <laughs> of paper um, with like small font, and you unfold them and you read through them. But I was reading this um, article. I think it was uh, Pam LeBlanc uh, at at you know her Fit City blog, or I'm sorry, uh, column, not blog, uh, column. And she had this piece on this elite running team in Austin and. I was like, oh, this sounds like pretty interesting. I love running. I'd been running for a bit, had run a couple marathons and was like, oh, this sounds brilliant. So I was kind of thinking, how can I get my foot in the door here? And um, luckily enough, the guy that was running the team had gone to undergrad at the same place I'd gone to undergrad. He spent, or had considered going there, had a little, spent a little bit of time there and also had a connection to um, same undergrad as Paul Croza, who was one of the OG um, uh, kind of running people here in town, this place called Abilene Christian. I was like, oh man, this is like just enough of a connection to like cold email this person and be like, hey, here's the thing. And I I thought, well, I could maybe pitch myself as a scientific liaison, um, nutrition, physiologist type person, because that was where my degree and and specialty really lied. And so I was like, hey, why don't you bring me on? And is there anything I could do for you? I'd be happy to help uh, do any type of the this the, the science side of, of the training program for you and, and help out there. And uh, that person was like, yeah, sure, I'll do it. And um, here I am. So that's that was sort of the, the origin story of how I got my foot in the door at Rogue. And this was Steve Sisson you're talking about. Yep, exactly. Steve Sisson. Who was my co-host for the first hundred or so episodes, one of the Rogue founders. And at that time, yeah. leading and coaching Team Rogue Elite, which became Rogue Athletic Club which you were assistant coach, which became your foot in the door for Rogue, which ultimately led to coaching our everyday athletes as well, coaching one of our groups, Team Rogue, and then becoming our training director. That's about it. Yeah, that sort of <laughs> closes the gap between, I'd say, 10 yeah. and ten and 15. <laughs> well, what I wanted to throw in there, though, is uh, what I like about it is um, when, you re- when you think back on these like uh, beginning stories, you came for one set of reason, but I have this outlook on life of like, you know, we have to come up with reasoning, we have to make choices and we have to move towards something. And it's in the movement and in the process of going and experiencing and trying that, you know, reason B, the real reason ultimately is like revealed to us. Um, Cause you know, you became a great coach and there's still so many people that talk about you, 
you and I became good friends, you became friends with Chris, like you developed community, et cetera. Um, but I loved that scientific angle that you brought even to me, even though you were coming to work with Steve, it's like a lot of us benefited from your technical mind and organized mind. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Well, and that, that was going to get to the kind of the question I was asking, which is when you, when you have the theory collide with the practical, you know, initially as an assistant there with, with Steve and Team Rogue Elite, and then ultimately as coach yourself with your own group, talk about that collision of theory and practical and what you learned during that process. Yeah, that's a good question. And, you know, because so much of what we, we lean on, at least in the traditional sense of lab-based research and applying that it's really tough because, you know, as anybody that's probably talked about this or knows anything about it, you know, all the lab-based research is primarily based on a convenient sample of eight to, to 12 individuals that are hanging around a performance lab. Like I was often a subject in uh, research studies. So they're, they're typically male, typically 18 to 22, um, and, you know, somewhat interested in that area. So it already makes it kind of hard to do a direct one-to-one application. Uh, but, you know, I think what's important is that you look at those things from a directional standpoint. And I, I think also like the, the, the other side of it too is the lab does a good job of probably disproving or debunking um, things, which helps not necessarily from a, from a dogmatic sense of like that can never be right or that can never be wrong. Uh, but it gives you a little bit of, of, of narrowing of your point of view so that you can go, okay, well, maybe I don't need to explore that side, but I can explore this side a little bit. But in terms of the directional element of it is it gives you something that goes, okay, well, how can I go and, and maybe explore this or apply this in a direct sense of, of like in my own training or in my own coaching, I heard this or read this thing about plyometrics or about heat training or about hydration. Um, and it kind of helps you just narrow the funnel a little bit versus um, just having to start strictly from like, oh, I read this thing on this forum that worked for some person or or whatever that might be. So um, I think the directionality is really the important part of it and, and kind of taking it and then exploring it from there because it is ultimately always a experiment of one. Yeah. And the interesting part too about that transition for you was because you entered a coaching environment with Steve, who might be the most intuitive driven coach that there is versus somebody who, I mean, obviously he understands the science, but, but he doesn't necessarily anchor there. He anchors in his intuition. And so more or less the opposite of you in a sense, in terms of how you're wired, colliding into one assistant and head coaching relationship. So how was that and what did you learn from it? Yeah, I mean, I came in as any new practitioner comes in and that's what the very black and white view of the world. They're like, oh, wow, I read this paper and I've got the answers. Like, I I figured it out. Like, this is it. (laughs) And then you go to apply it and you realize very quickly, like, oh, that's not exactly how it works because somebody might not interpret it that way or it's not a blinded study or whatever. It might be. And so, yeah, what I learned from that is that there, there is both an art and a, and a science to uh, this run training business. 
And uh, yeah, I really needed that. I think, you know, from my own personal development, had I not worked with somebody like Steve or worked at a place like Rogue that really valued the feel of the body, I probably would have never come to that realization in, in such a same way. I mean, there was, um, because uh, there was a number of coaches at that time that were, you know, more kind of science driven and, and things of that nature. So I'm really thankful in hindsight to have had that experience of, of having that kind of push a little bit of listening to the body and feeling the body. Um, and, and that turned out to be really great because I, I now certainly apply that in, in, in my own training and, and, uh, and even my approach to work today. Yeah, that's cool. It's probably the best possible scenario for a hard scientist to be exposed to somebody who is driven more by intuition right away. So you were with us for about five years, I think, in one role or another, and then that's left right. to take a cool opportunity at Under Armour, where you went to work directly in the product side of wearables. So talk about what you've been doing since. Yeah, I left... Rogue in 15, 20, August 2015, like we, we said. And um, at that point in time, uh, it was a really interesting moment in the broader, say, sports tech, connected fitness um, space where a lot of these larger companies were acquiring some of these early sports tech, fitness tech uh, success stories like uh, ASICs had, had bought um, a running app. Adidas had brought, bought a running app. Um, and Under Armour went on a massive buying spree and bought not just one running app, but two running apps and a, a large nutrition app called MyFitnessPal. So at this point, um, they had purchased MapMyRun and, and that suite of apps and this uh, uh, app called Indomundo. Uh, which was based in Copenhagen, Denmark. And so it really kind of like acquired this enormous health and fitness community through these acquisitions. And uh, at that point, they also had this, this aspiration of, of, as our CEO said at the time, Kevin Plank said, I really wanted to electrify the t-shirt. And he didn't know what that meant, but he knew what his, his insight was, was that it's not just putting on the stuff and going to do the stuff. It's like you can be informed by sensors and technology and make better decisions. That's what he ultimately wanted to do. So he had a lot of aspirations and, and Under Armour at that point in time had a lot of aspirations of going to do stuff in, in wearables. And so I, I came on at a point when we were just about to launch a thing called Healthbox, which was um, at that time, everybody was making, and I say everybody, all the big kind of sports tech players were making a wrist contraption that did some version of sleep tracking and step tracking and maybe had some some very crude early optical heart rate monitor which we all take for granted now because everything has a heart rate mon optical heart rate monitor on it um, it had a scale that measured body fat percentage um, or inferred it and it had um, a, a heart rate chest strap because at that point in time wrist-based heart rate was still pretty um, unreliable. So you had to have a, a, a still heart rate chest strap. So was, the idea was to kind of package all these things in one. So you could have this like easy button type experience and have all of your health and fitness tracking through a single box, thus health box. And so, yeah, that was, that was sort of what I kind of came into and fell into this role of, of helping to 
be the subject matter expert on how to apply the 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 principles of these various things so you you've got you know training plans in uh these running apps how should they work how should they they what should be your builds for long runs and you know if they're adaptive how should they adapt and then also at the same time starting to dust off what i had not done really in a long time which was really rigorous science and um validating a lot of the the wearables that we were putting out and kind of making sure that things like step tracking were as good as they could be. Um, the, the body fat percentage measurements were as good as they should be. So it was a really like fun kind of space. It was, it was everything that had kind of been a part of my past colliding into one thing. And, and we just had a lot of fun um, in those early, early years of putting out one wearable device after another. Can you speak to some of the, development process there i remember you having rogues come in to test various things you know go for a run with something and come back and you take the data and because i I guess i just want to give people a sense for how the sausage is made relative to some of these wearables because i think there's a perception perhaps that everything is completely you know buttoned up and 100 percent based on science and you know once it gets to your wrist or your finger or your, or wherever you're wearing it, it's a hundred percent, right? It's, you know, to be taken as the, as the word of God or something like that, but clearly it's not that way. And you obviously got to see behind the curtain on that. And, and that's not to take anything away from all these products, but it's harder to develop them than it might think you might, people might think. Yeah, it certainly is. And you know, a lot of things influence the, the the accuracy of the measures and so on and so forth. But, you know, it all kind of starts with like a basic sensor of, of some sort. And a lot of times these sensors come from other places. Um, so, you know, take an accelerometer, which is this little tiny device that's been around for decades, and it, it just measures how fast something accelerates. So, once you're kind of at a steady state, it's not really doing anything, but as long as you're constantly accelerating and decelerating, it's, it's picking up sensation. And that like, from my, what I understand, I, I worked with a person that had been in, in this space for many, many years, decades. I mean, it was like, oh yeah, that came from the automobile industry. And that was like, you know, one of these things that had been kind of picked up and moved over. Um, so you take these sensors that maybe have an origin in health and fitness, maybe they don't. And um, you start going, okay, how can I apply these to health and, and fitness in some way that's interesting because I have a, a use case for a product or whatever that might be. Um, and really like what you do from a <laughs> basic sense is you turn on the sensor and you start recording a ton of data in whatever type of application you're interested in. So at Under Armour, we had a product called Connected Footwear. And it was um, a shoe that looked and felt just like a shoe, um, except it had a small pod in it that measured your running speed and your distance and your running form. And it was basically just an accelerometer. And the amazing thing about it is you, you just would start doing a lot of run tracking. So we would do you know thousands of miles of run tracking a year with various individuals. And that's what people from Rogue were coming into doing. And you were like, okay, we want it to work when you're doing... A f- a fart lick. We want it to work when you're running at this speed, or we want it to work for people that are forefoot or rear foot or whatever these various kind of conditions are. And you just basically collect all the data you can 
And then you throw it at people with like really fancy degrees in uh, engineering or mathematics and say, hey, can you like pull a signal from all of this noise? And, you know, that's an oversimplification, but because there is like theoretical kind of formulae and things like that that are, that are out there, you know, this is not like you're just starting from scratch from, you know, basic exploration. Um, but, you know, to make it really good and make it right, you have to put a bunch of data at it. And that's where places like Apple have really gained an upper hand over the years is because they have the money and they have the resources available to um, go and throw a bunch of uh, data at, at particular problems and figure things out. Um, so it's ultimately about collecting a, a huge sample set and then having a, a you know, basic mathematical concept or, or, or you know, physical principles behind it. And validating those, those principles are real with through those data sets. So that's really it, it, it's how it goes. You usually have a benchmark. I should say <laughs> this is most important part. You have a benchmark. You have something that is your source of truth um, that you go and compare against. So you put them on a treadmill or you put them on a known course or you put a fancy heart rate monitor on them and you measure the optical heart rate from the wrist and you go, okay, yeah, these match that. And this looks good in this condition where it wasn't good. What can we do about it? At some level, you're drawing a trend line with the data. Right. Trend line, you you're really That's just an oversimplification, but you're you're shaping the data to an outcome you're expecting. Yeah, you're you're looking for if if a thing said it ran if you know the athlete or the, the test subject had a heart rate of one sixty five or ran however many miles, you're going, okay, like what what of this is 165 or three miles and okay if it was not that what part of this was not that and trying to you know smooth out the signal from the noise at that point there so um but yeah and then there's a bunch of really fancy filtering techniques and things like that that are applied on top of it so there there's a ton of work that goes into and what level of accuracy were you guys looking for in order to feel good about putting something out there Yes, accuracy is always a really tough <laughs> standpoint to come from because there are, you know, agencies out there that help set um, uh, standards, you know, like the, the Consumer Technology Association, CTA. I was part of this group for a number of years and uh, we worked together across various companies. So, you know, you had Fitbit and Google and well, before Fitbit and Google were one thing um, you had Phillips, you had others who come together and say, like, you know what, we all kind of collectively agree that these kind of standards were, were pretty good. And, you know, for step tracking, it was something like 10% for heart rate, it was something else. Um, you know, so it's, you know, what you're, what you're more kind of like interested in, I think I, what, what people are looking for is some level of reliability or consistency. Because um, like pure accuracy is, is harder to come by, um, unless you're you know, in a heart rate sense, take that, for example, sitting still, you know, like kind of laying there, not really doing much, which is why sleep is a great place to collect things like heart rate variability, which is the distance of time between beats of your heart and, and how much variation there is between those distances of time between the heartbeats. And if you have a lot of it and your heart is like kind of beats a little bit funky, then it's like, oh, that's like a good thing. It means your heart's like really relaxed, whereas like, you know, but that's hard to get during the middle of a run because there's just so much other noise and stuff happening during the run. Your fingers are moving, your 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 device is sliding up and down, your 
your body's at a stress state. And, and so, yeah, so I, I'd say accuracy is like relevant, but what you're really looking for is consistent accuracy. And what you don't want is something that is one day telling you one number, the next day for the equal effort or for an equal experience, a different thing, because um, that's more problematic. But companies have made tremendous strides here. You know, when heart rate, when Apple came out with their first Apple watch with heart rate on it, it was the worst. Like it was scientifically proven to be the worst optical heart rate on the market at the time. But within two years, it was the best. And it now continues to be the best. And it's not necessarily because they have better sensors. I mean, they're Apple, they have great sensors, but they also have better uh, sensor processing and filtering and things of that nature to get to those better places too. So, And probably more data than anybody. <laughs> and more data than anybody, absolutely. Go ahead, James. I was curious and wanted to weave as we talk about the devices themselves and the things you're learning um, back to that narrative of your scientist black and white perspective coming in under a coach that's very intuitive. You're seeing the extreme version of the applied. Now you're back into a space of kind of a perfect, you would think in theory, perfect spot to look at applied and um, science and black and white. Where are you at on that? Like maturation curve and learning curve and what's going on inside you as a person as you're moving into kind of these like data sets and guiding products, but also you've now got this background of coaching and seeing the applied so intimately with your own eyes and experience. Yeah, because the actual like engineering of these things are, is very black and white. It is by definition, it is if this happens, then this happens. So it's a series of if thens. But um, from a human side, the actual person using the product, of, uh, assuming that you're, you're building, you know, we're talking about running here. So like, let's assuming we're talking about a, a wearable that is in consumer driven. Well, human actually has to know what to go do. And I'll, I'll never forget this like experience I had. It was probably 2015, 2016. I was still coaching, but I wasn't working at Rogue full time. And uh, this guy that was in the um, uh, uh, Team Rogue 530 AM group, he comes up to me, got Jim, he very excited he's like comes up he's like i just got this new wearable i go or like garmin watch whatever it tells me cadence my cadence is this like what do you think about that i was like i have no idea first off it's like 5 30 in the morning so i'm like barely awake second off i don't know like i i don't know what is what is a good cadence and you know like that actually came back at some point but it like sparked this thing with me that you know, it's not just having the sensor data available, the metric available, you actually have to know what to do with it. And I think that's the ultimate struggle with it, because if you're a huge company where you have thousands of end users, you kind of have to paint with broad strokes because you don't actually know who's using the thing that you're using. You might have some basic demographic information on them, but you kind of have to play it safe and be like, well, you know, if it, this is sort of directionally the thing that's happening then you know you can maybe interpret it from this way um but you know what i've i've learned from that it's like if you want someone to use your product it's one thing to have like a, a accurate sensor um, but you actually also have to then help somebody understand how to interpret the data um, and i think that's really where the game is being played today um, and and that's what i hope to see more products out doing and they're they're trying to you know apply things like artificial intelligence you know whether it be the new whoop AI coach or, or things of that nature, where they're trying to really like understand a little bit more about you and digest the data at a, at a, a more granular level about the individual and, and, and move from less like 
deterministic business rule type outcomes. That is to say, you know, if you see this and this happens or you tell the person this uh, to actually going at an individual level, their pro you know, data is being processed in such a way that it's trying to give you outcomes based on uh, or predict outcomes based on your your individual data set. So it has to be ultimately about how the data is applied. It's not just dumping and throwing the data at people that that is you might as well not even track it at that point. I think that's a great answer. One, two, I'm going to go back to a very specific and that's I did a did you ever work out on uh, the kind of like final answer on cadence? I know that was just one example, but I wanted to go to it. And here's why uh, one of our virtual teams actually asked on the boards and we I'll give you my answer. But someone got excited and said, hey, I read about the 180 uh, steps per minute. Should I work on my cadence, move it up from 160? And my response was basically um, data shows that the average CEO is over six foot tall. And um, no matter how hard I work, I'm not going to reach six foot plus. Right. So I tried to make a point that. All right. Listen. Yes, we've observed that out there. Great observation doesn't mean you can't be CEO if you're under six foot and doesn't mean you can't run a great marathon if you don't run 180 steps per minute. Um, would you agree or would you have taken a different angle? Did you ever circle back to your athlete who's bombarding you at 530 in the morning with questions you don't want? <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, we did. A, we actually worked on this problem at Under Armour. We, we put a product out um, called Form Coaching. And we had this really unique opportunity because we did have a large data set and we could look at various physiological uh, or, you know, morphological, uh, anthropometric, you know, whatever um, uh, components, characteristics such as height and weight and speed and stuff. And you do see relationships like and they're pretty clean. Now, obviously, you know, can you imagine like if you close your eyes and imagine like a relationship between, say, height and cadence? you might imagine like it's really nice fat black line, but the truth is it's like a cloud. That's sort of like an egg shape kind of thing around it where the line dissects the middle of the egg and you've got, you know, some clustering on one side or the other. Um, so you can like, you see directionality, you see trends. And so that's like helpful, right? You can be like, Hey, you know what? For somebody that is, if you're, you're if you're six, six and your running partner is five, six, and you're running the same pace, you probably shouldn't have the exact same cadence. Like we know that the person that's 6'6 is going to have a lower cadence. But, you know, within, you know, a comparison of people that are all 6'6 running the same pace, it's probably a little bit different. And we know that to be true. It's, it's like intuitive to be true too. Like if you're a four foot runner, you've ever watched people that run four foot, like their cadence is typically a little bit faster. They're running, they're like their foot's hitting the ground underneath them. They're shortening their stride a little bit to do those things. And that's all okay. But it is helpful to know that directionally there are these, these trends that exist. And if you're new to the sport, like explore those things because we, we found, I found this to be true at Rogue even before I knew anything about any of this space that, you know, it was helpful in the, the, the Rogue 101, the new Rogue class to, help people with quote unquote overstriding. These were new runners that kind of came out, had a picture in their mind about how running looked. And it was like, I need to make it look really hard because that's how it looks on commercials. And if you've ever seen people film a running commercial, well, they're not running normal. They're like really <laughs> overstriding it. And um, so, yeah, it is helpful, I think, to have that, but you're never going to have a black and white, like for your thing, this is your golden rule. And if you don't hit this, 
it's all over for you. You're, you're leaving, you're leaving, you know, seconds on your, on the, the, the table when it comes to your race day, but directionality. Yes, that is important. I want to quickly finish your background and then let's dig back into wearables, but you're no longer with Under Armour have gone on to continue development in the wearable space, but in a different application. So give us a quick version of where you are now. Yeah. So I work for a company where our application today is in digital health. So we're, we're work within a, a, a population of people living with diabetes that help individuals that have lost uh, sensitivity in their extremities. So anybody that's listening to this and knows somebody with complex diabetes might understand that you lose sensitivity in your extremities. Well, how we go and help these individuals that have lost feeling, they're, they're at risk of, of, of really doing damage to the bottom of their, their feet, just like individuals wear out socks over time, um, is we, we have this really unique uh, uh, sensor technology. It replaces an insole that goes within your, your normal shoe, and you, you pull that thing out, you put this thing in, and it has temperature sensors in it, it has pressure sensors spread throughout the bottom of it. And then you have your um, um, accelerometer, the unit we were talking about earlier, and this thing called a gyroscope, which is basically a fancy way of saying like your orientation. So it can sense orientation in space. Um, and, you know, for our application, we, we use it to tell people, hey, you know, you're at risk of putting too much pressure in this area for too long. You should you know, lay off, do something different. Um, or, you know, in the, the temperature sensing stuff, it, as people are becoming, as we all know this, like if you get sick, you get a fever, your temperature is like warmer. It's a sign of your body is fighting something or inflamed. And it's just like that in localized areas on the bottom of the feet. If you are, you know, really starting to generate quote unquote a hot spot, um, as we probably runners that have all worn shoes that are too small at some point in time will appreciate, you can pick those things up. Um, we've applied this technology in other ways too. So more directly of interest probably to this group is uh, we've used it for uh, biomechanics research. Um, so we've uh, we've applied this into other places like biomechanics labs, people are interested in developing footwear um, where, you know, they can take this thing and, and measure um, the raw signals of running form. And, um, you know, that's all super helpful and interesting too, where it's a little bit high end. Uh, but really in-depth running form type measurement all through pressure and, and um, the, the gyroscope and the accelerometer. Interesting. So you're saving lives and helping people run better. We're trying to do a little bit of it all. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Before we get into some of the practical application with Jeff on running and wearables, I want to talk about my sponsorship with Run John G. John G. Running Apparel. They've been a partner of mine for six months now. I'm loving their gear. In fact, just the other day, I went out for a run with all of their stuff on. Had a Reno T on with their Trail Half Tights, with their Bolega John G. Sock collaboration, as well as some of their lightweight gloves because it was below 50 degrees. And I finally got to pull out some gloves, which was amazing. So I had an amazing run in their gear in beautiful temperatures and came back feeling great. But let's talk about John G. Again, they're a running apparel company. 2% of all of their revenue goes to support water projects all around the world. Their gear is great. It's functional and it's long lasting. They have a five-year run everywhere guarantee. So if something happens, you can get it replaced in that window with no questions asked. 
I want you to go to their site, runjohng.com or johng.com and check out their stuff. You can use my code rogue15, R-O-G-U-E, 1-5 for 15% off your order. You can use that code once. You can use it twice. You can share it with your friends. Go get your Run John G gear and enjoy those runs starting today. Okay, let's get back to my conversation with Jeff and James. All right, so I want to go back in and kind of go by type of device here for a minute, or at least category of measurement, which I know that all these wearables are kind of converging on being able to do all the things. But, you know, for the most part, there's still different silos of things from, for example, GPS watches to then, you know, more health-based trackers and things like that, like Aura and Whoop. Let's start with the GPS realm. And I remember my very first GPS watch. It was a Timex. I think it was, I was mid-20s. So we're going on 20 years ago. It was a Timex device that had a shoulder or a upper arm band pod thing that you wore and then it somehow tracked it on your on your watch from there that was my very first experience with it i remember discarding it almost right away i got it for like a birthday gift and didn't enjoy wearing the big hefty pod on my bicep so i got rid of it right away and obviously then we progressed to like the brick you know, candy bar, Garmin style devices. And now, you know, we've just got basic wrist, <laughs> wrist watches that do it all. So it's been quite an evolution. But in that realm, when it comes to measuring pace and distance and time and things like that, how, how are we doing? It seems like we're in a pretty good place there. We're, we're, we're getting better. We're doing pretty good. We're getting better. I've, I've certainly seen it evolve over the last eight years. Um, and it's the combination of things. The sensors have gotten better. There's some more. So we should talk just like a little bit at the, the basic level, just to like lay some foundation here. Um, I, I think at this point, if you're if you bought a or if you purchased a high end GPS watch recently, you'll have noticed that there's GPS, but there's also this thing called GLONASS, G L O N A S S. Um, there's other other kind of like satellite systems out there, and so um, we, we've we've seen sort of the the adoption of more satellite systems, and at least here in the U.S., we've adopted kind of like as a Kleenex, the GPS, like everything is just GPS, but it's ultimately this kind of like dual band, dual uh, device, uh, or dual satellite system or multi-satellite system here. So that's sort of been evolved, uh, an evolving thing, evolving thing that, you know, eight years ago, 10 years ago, you only had GPS and that was like a thing. So um, you've seen um, better kind of like layouts of terrain as we've gotten better like imagery of of the earth in and of itself um the basic mathematical formulae that we use to um, filter gps signals has continued to evolve um and then yes the sensors have become more powerful now there's limits on the level of power that these things can emit because of um you know certification levels and like kind of dangers of exposure to to human beings. So everything that we're talking about here has presumably gone through the, the safe level of certification. Um, and of course you've got better batteries and, and better power density. So as your batteries have improved and your, your power density has improved, you can crank up the signal more, you can crank up these things more and you can take more samples within a given period of time. 
Um, so all these things have allowed us to like get a little bit better. And we've also learned how to do things like manage uh, really challenging and harsh conditions like tall buildings that are constantly like blocking um, satellites and, and stuff like that through there. But, you know, things that are interestingly area places that have, have really helped push the basic research along have been rideshare companies um, that publish their research because they ultimately need to know if they're going to pick somebody up, which corner of a busy intersection that person is on. Are they on the Northwest or they, because, you know, you miss that corner, you've got a circle block and then the person's like, Nope, I'm canceling. So <laughs> huge investments into those areas. So yeah, better sensors, more powerful sensors, better GP, better satellite systems, more satellite systems, uh, and better just general mathematics have, have helped these things come along. Um, but I think probably where you're ultimately going to get to is, well, how does it compare to like the thing measured on race day? And well, that's a whole nother story, right? <laughs> like you, you're never going to kind, you're never going to, at least I doubt in my lifetime, we're going to perfectly emulate like what to expect on race day. And that, that's a whole nother set of conversations too, because that's just right. a different challenge altogether. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's the classic thing. Well, that course was long or short or, well, hold on. <laughs> yeah. Certified course measured by the appropriate certification standards, then your watch is going to be inaccurate, but the course is in fact accurate. And you may still run longer because you're not properly managing the tangents, but that's a separate conversation. Exactly right. I mean, that's it. You can't run. It's it's virtually impossible to run the course exactly right, unless you're running on a lane of a track and you're you're sticking to that lane. Uh, but yeah, right. it's it's really hard. It's, it's you can't do it. And so your watch is going to be off. And so I think this kind of gets back ultimately to the art and science. Is like you need to have a good feel for what nine minute a mile feels like, or or you know five minutes kilometers per kilometer feels like, because. If you don't have a good feel for that, come race day, when you're maybe at a point where your satellite hasn't, you haven't quite grabbed the signal the way you expect to, or you're running through a challenging area, you're like, you need to know what that feels like. Because if you start pushing too hard too early in a race, like we all know what that does. You know, the outcome ain't good. Well, we just had the Chicago Marathon, the, the perfect marathon to really kind of highlight this challenge because you go through a tunnel in mile one. You're in dense buildings through much of the race and your GPS may or may not be accurate at certain points and, or it may not be accurate the whole time, you know, in the case of a handful of people. And so you actually do have to rely on how does it feel? And by the way, if I'm lapping manually, what is my time on the measured course for the measured distances that are available? That's right. That's ultimately what matters too it's like that's what we're you're you're doing it for you if you're an outcome-based trainer uh then yeah that's ultimately what it's about and and like also like don't forget that you know there there's a lot of companies out there that you know are in the business of of making training fun and interesting and you know they're you may find that depending on which platform you're viewing your training data and that your results may not all be the exact same from one to the another to another. And, um, you know, cause what might equal engagement on a platform might not look the exact same as way as performance on race day. And 
that's okay, right? Because like we all want different things out of those things, but that's why, yeah, it gets back to it. It's like what's ultimately important is what the split says on race day. Um, and that's what you got to learn to know and, and like use that to kind of calibrate against each other as you're, you're going and, and going for that ultimate uh, goal. That last point is interesting because I think it's one that people forget, which is that the way one app interprets the data to create output on your watch Strava versus Garmin Connect, for example, they might be different. They might be interpreting the data differently and you might actually see slightly different things on each. That's right. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's, it's all dialed differently. And, um, you know, now if if you're probably, I don't know exactly how Strava works, but my, my presumption is that, you know, they're pulling in, um, the data exactly as it says from, from Garmin, they're respecting that. But if you were to say like, log natively you know track track through your phone application you know and and do that there and then also simultaneously track on your garmin watch and then simultaneously track on the map my run app you're going to get three different measurements that's just the way it is right because they all like do things a little bit differently and they all use different sets of math and and it's all you know there there's no there's no like uh agency there's no part of the the government that says like here's your GPS formula. Everybody <laughs> apply it this way. And if you don't, we're going to find you. <laughs> it works that way for like privacy and security and things like that, which is good because we need that level of, of privacy and, and protection yeah. on that front, but not when it comes to GPS. Yeah. Or, or applications in, in ways that might impact life, like cars or something like that. They're going to have a standard that might be subject to find if not followed. Exactly. So, Okay, so then, given that, given that we know, look, I mean, I, and I think the way I the way I try to tell people is like, look, your watch is not accurate. Like, you have to accept that it's not accurate. It is going to be directionally correct, maybe really accurate, but it's got limitations, and you have to accept that and understand what those limitations are, so that when you're applying what you see on your wrist, you're applying it in a way that's helpful versus too rigidly. So if you were to give people general tips on using a GPS watch, pace and distance and all that, what would you say are the, you know, do's and don'ts? Yeah, I think that's really, really key. First thing, if you're working with a coach, like first and foremost, listen to the coach. That's the most important thing is use your, use your information to have a more, use your data, to have a more informed conversation with your coach. And, um, instead of saying, you know what, coach, you did it wrong. My watch said this, I know you told me this, but my watch said this. So therefore, whatever the course is that you, you created for us is wrong. And I'm right. Like that's, that's just like, you've got to trust the process for any of it to work. First and foremost, you've got to trust the process. Um, so, you know, when it comes to it, yeah, like, yeah, I think it is helpful to look, you know, if you're trying to track your, your weekly training load. It's just, it's great for that. Like if you need to know your overall mileage, it's great for that. If you need to know kind of roughly your your paces for whatever reason, maybe it's go faster or slower, it's great for that. Like if you need to push yourself and you need like some maybe objective feedback on days when you're tired, say you're in an intense training block and you're in like a, a three week, you're in a mesocycle where you're like, I need to like push myself really hard here where your days, where your legs feel like lead. But for whatever reason, you need to push some point. Like it's helpful for that to like keep you honest. 
It's also helpful in the opposite direction of like on days when you're feeling like great and you need to like lay back a little bit because maybe you're tapering or something like that. It's like good to help push it the other direction, um, in my opinion. But that's ultimately, I think, where it's at is it's like a, it's an input to the, the all the other uh, uh, kind of, you know, it's one of one of many inputs into the overall kind of training formula. With a very important one to never forget, which is how you feel. And don't forget to listen to your body, which is so hard. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's talk about heart rate for a minute. A lot of these devices, GPS watches and things have sensor or uh, the optical heart rate measured from the wrist. And I just went on a rant about this recently. I think on the this podcast, maybe it was on our other Renegade podcast, that it is, I am finding as a coach that it is more often, if it's out of whack, it's more often inaccurate than it is accurate. And people are putting way too much stock in it. And so when they're, when it's giving them something that looks funny relative to how they feel, they're asking me, well, what's wrong? What's going on? My, you know, my heart rate's telling me it's 170 and I'm running an easy run and I feel fine. And I'm like, well, most likely that watch is inaccurate. How you feel is probably accurate. So go with that. So give us a little bit on that. How how much can we trust the optical heart rate on a wrist? <laughs> yeah, it's tough. It's a loaded question there, Chris. Uh, <laughs> yes. How much can you trust anything? Um, you know? <laughs> no, uh, yeah, I think, uh, you know, it's the same story as with GPS. It's gotten better. Um, you know, the, the heart rate uses, the optical heart rate uses this thing. It's a great word photoplethysmography. It's like a $5 word, throw it out at a party, you'll lose friends instantaneously. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's in short called PPG. Um, what it does is it sends light into your skin and it actually looks for the, the, the actual like pulsation of blood through your, your vasculature. So obviously as you have a bolus of blood moving through your vasculature, it looks bigger. Like, you know, when we imagine a snake swallowing something it's like this you know in a cartoon sense of like this really comedic ball of whatever moving through the snake's body um it, that's literally what it's looking for and it shoots that in there and then it reflects it back and um you know it's you know, we've done a lot of different work around well what wavelength is perfect uh what wavelength is perfect for this skin tone um and all these various things which is why you see watches now that are have uh you know different colored lights underneath them because they're trying to do different things with it. Um, and, and, you know, people have tried different things too, like uh, just, you, you know, using like these like really small um, uh, uh, jolts of electricity that move through and they're like kind of picked up on another side. Um, and that's measuring kind of similar type stuff. It's more like this electrodermal type thing. Um, and, you know, you've had, you know, and, and then all down to like sort of, how tight the device is around your wrist and all that type of good stuff there. And uh, so, yeah, there's a lot of factors that kind of impact it. You know, if you're dehydrated, you're going to see different levels of, of availability and, and so on and so forth. So um, yeah. And, and, you know, ultimately some devices have reputations for being better, better than others. And that's just kind of the way it is too. Um, if you want the best heart rate from a wearable device, you've got to still wear a chest strap and um, you know, make sure that the, contacts are 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 like moistened up especially on a cold dry day um but you know that's all basic stuff like what you're ultimately kind of getting down to though it's like 
how much do I try? Like if I'm supposed to do a threshold run and I need it to be at this point, and I, I think that that's like a zone four kind of thing, and that's like 170 for me, like how much do I get it in there? And it's like, yeah, I think it's helpful. Like if you've had good reliability with your device and you know, like day in and day out, like I get pretty good stuff here. Um, and, and I can kind of feel, I can use it to dial in, but you know, ultimately like if you're not feeling it on a particular day and it's like, it, it can become as dangerous as pace where you're just using it dogmatically and you're like, oh man, if I don't hit this pace, I'm not going to do it on race day. And like, that's just not true. Like, like training is, is way more dynamic than that. And then the actual like individual point of a single workout, like it's not as important as the, the broader whole. So you have to kind of like look at those things from a, a holistic picture and, and take a step back and go, yeah, you know what? I'm not feeling it today. Or these numbers like just don't pass the sniff test for me. Like I'm seeing 220 on here. It's like, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> or I'm working pretty hard and I'm seeing 80 or 90 on here. Like that doesn't make sense. Like maybe just forget about it that day. And like, move on and, and, and go from it from that standpoint there. So we can't, you know, we're, we don't, no one wants to be like the Michael Scott in the office following the GPS from the lake. Like that's not <laughs> what we're here for. Like if it doesn't make sense. Don't, don't trust it for that day. Right. Yeah. I mean, ultimately you have to still listen to your body and yeah, if the data from a relative sense and, and typically I think with risk-based stuff, heart rate, then to me, if you have relatively good data, day to day, that correlates with your perceived effort, then that can be helpful. And you may also find there are certain trends about when it might be inaccurate. For me, when I'm when it's cold and windy day, typically my wrist-based heart rate isn't that accurate. It'll be really high. And sometimes, by the way, this stuff will sync with your cadence, you know, as some weird byproduct of, of yeah. the algorithms as well. And so if you're seeing, you know, 170, 180, then maybe that's what's happening. Well, yeah. And I mean, think about that cold and windy day. What's happening is like when it's cold and when it's windy, your body like physiologically is trying to manage the, the core temperature. And what is like the best way to move heat around the body is blood. And then when it's cold, you're like, okay, I need to like move more blood, this warming element into my core and keep it into my core. So that means there's less blood happening out at the extremities, which is a harder, you know, we talked about the snake eating the thing, like it's a harder signal to pick up when that, like, you know, that, that element that's moving through the vasculature is smaller and um, those pieces there. So yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of physiology, but you know, yeah. don't, don't get me wrong. Like I obviously like I've worked in the space for a while at this point, I obviously trust it and I believe in, I, I have parts of it that I find really valuable. So, you know, for me just getting over um, a cold recently, it, it was so nice to be able to look at my heart rate variability data while I was sleeping in my core, my, in my temperature, my skin temperature while I'm sleeping and um, my, my respiration rate and my heart rate while I'm sleeping going, Oh, like I'm actually getting over this. And like today was the first day I went for a run in, in since last Tuesday because I'd been fighting something. And, you know, today, truthfully, I might not have gone out and done it because, you know, still like, oh, I'm like, I don't want to get like, you know, I want to get over this, like kick this thing. But I had two days where it was like, oh, my, all of my signs look great. I should get out and do something. And I went out and I was like, great. I'm so glad I did that. And so at that point, like that's where the, the device signals can be like really nice is when you're trying to actually like monitor or measure something more globally um, from that standpoint. Like, you know, again, on heart rate with these things like heart rate and heart rate variability, maybe you're supposed to be in a really intense training block and your coach is like, Hey, we really need to be pushing it for this mesocycle. 
Well, yeah, you should see your heart rate variability going down and you should see your heart rate while you're resting going up. And if you're not seeing that, you're probably not doing enough work and you probably <laughs> need to do a little more work. And so that's like really, it's like really nice, like objective signals that help kind of validate something that we're not quite sure or trusting ourselves. I think that's really the beauty of it is pairing those two things together. Which is a good segue to these more health tracking type wearables. So what are you using to track HRV and overnight heart rate and temperature? It's not a product endorsement, but I use Aura and I've okay. used Aura for about three years now. I, okay. It was one of the, I adopted it, you know, during the pandemic, like yep. so many other people did. As did I, I wore it for, I think about a year and a half during the pandemic. I no longer, I no longer wear it, but that's a separate story. So Aura and Whoop are the two big players in that space where you're tracking overnight HRV, heart rate, body temperature, sleep cycles in theory. So what, from, from a wearable perspective in that area, what's the good and the bad? I, I think if you're just getting into like becoming aware of the, the importance of recovery and, and things like that, I mean, it's really been like a, a renaissance of the recovery element of training. It's become very popularized and uh, I think it's, I, I agree with the hype. It's, it's very important. And uh, I studied sleep uh, at Under Armour for a couple of years. We had a really great uh, research relationship with Johns Hopkins with a, a couple of uh, 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 researchers there. And it just really became aware of the importance of sleep and recovery. And, you know, you can, you can do sleep you can do a lot of the the sleep recovery hygiene stuff without a tracker um, because it's like really basic and boring stuff it's like go to bed at the same time every night wake up at the same time every morning and have a good routine before you go to bed which we've all heard at this point i'm not gonna like recap all of those things but it's you know don't don't like be on your phone super late don't do stuff that's stressful right before bed don't you know make sure you have a cold dark quiet environment sleeping all that stuff there, but that will get you like 80% of the way there, right? Like you can really get things dialed in. And once you've kind of figured out like what your, what your sleep needs are. And so you use a device like Aura for a while or some other sleep tracker, you kind of figure out what your needs are. You've kind of got it figured out for the most part. And, you know, a lot of times it's not that important until you go and get sick. Like the use case I was just providing, which at that point I was like, man, I'm so glad I had this thing because I've got a really good sense of where my body is right now. And I knew like how to like lay off when I was starting to feel bad. And then also when it was time to start going again, when it was time to go again. So I think there's really good value in that. And if anything, the, the wearables have just made us all more aware of the importance of sleep, just from the general hype that comes with the development and release of new um, products that are well adopted. So yeah, I look at it both ways. Like, is it helpful? Yes, absolutely. Is it, it's most helpful when you're, you're stressing your body or you're putting yourself through kind of like dynamic elements. But if you're living a general healthy life and you know what you're, you've figured out what your bedtime needs to be and what your wake time needs to be, then you're probably good most of the time. Yeah. And I remember when I got COVID during the pandemic, wearing my aura, it was, it gave me the first indicator that something was wrong before, well, before I even started to feel sick or knew that I had COVID, my heart rate variability tanked, my respiratory rate went up. 
body temperature slightly elevated, resting heart rate elevated overnight. And in fact, I was actually a part of a study that helped correlate all those things, but it really yeah. interesting. And, and it told me, you know, both when I was getting sick and then it told me when I was ready to resume running because those levels had normalized again, as you're talking about, which is really powerful. The downside ultimately for me was that there was a period of time when I was wearing it where I was, I was struggling sleeping for what mm. I found out later was a, what ended up being a nutri- nutrient deficiency that was preventing me from being able to sleep well and was able to get that solved. But during that time, it was just giving me bad data. I mean, it was giving me bad or bad scores, you know, so it became a self-fulfilling prophecy. Essentially. I think it became something that got in my head a little bit that made it worse to be wearing it and tracking it for me to be able to actually work through that period of time as I was managing it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a very real thing. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it does get in your head and sleep is this weird thing. All our, like our entire life is something that's active where you need to run harder. Well, you like run harder. You need to run fast. You run harder. It's like, you just, you put more effort into it and sleep. It's the exact opposite. The more effort you put into it, the worse it is. You just have to like, let it wash over you. You just have to somehow like right. stop everything else. And it's like the absence of things that allow sleep to really like come on to you. And yeah, when you are in this cycle and you, you get really like, oh man, like my bedtime needs to be 10 o'clock and you miss it and you're just like, oh shit, like there's no way I'm going to now my, my whole thing shot. It's just ruined. Like, yeah, you've got to have this like healthy thing. And yeah, I, I, I went through a cycle this summer where I stopped wearing my 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 and stop tracking things for a month because it was just like i need to like have some healthy balance with and i i recommend people do that like they have some time where they do it but you know the adoption of it and bringing it on is so helpful i mean i i'm a person that enjoys um a, an, an adult beverage or two um and you know living in this the great city of austin texas there is no shortage of adult beverages and um i learned how important or how big of an impact you know, alcohol has on my sleep. And I've, I've since cut back (laughs) the the amount that I drink, especially, you know, during, during training periods and and things like that, where it's like, I I just know that it's really going to wreck me. Um, I might feel okay the next day, but you look at your numbers and you're like, okay. Um, And and you kind of dial that stuff in and and those other pieces there. So it's really helpful from like the exploratory side of it and kind of learning what your body can and can't do well. and, And especially as your body changes over the years and and those pieces there. One thing I want to emphasize with those devices, at least from my experience is that the raw data is so much more important and helpful than the algorithm interpretation of that raw data, because you'll get recovery scores and sleep scores and all these scores. And while those might be helpful and directionally correct, I think the most important stuff you get from those devices Aura and whoop is the raw information because those scores are just algorithms, just like Garmin has its algorithms about when you're recovered, when, when, you know, when you're recovered, that may or may not be that useful. And so speak to the, the algorithms that lay on top of the data. Yeah. Yeah. These, these sort of like, um, uh, applied metrics, these, these sort of like, uh, insight 
driven metrics. Yeah, it goes back. We, we were kind of talking about this a little bit earlier on as, yeah, there is this general direction. They, they have a, the companies have a broad user base and they know what's happening and, and, uh, and they, they're trying to give, you know, they have a good sense of what's happening at a population level. And they're thus giving information insights back at a population level up until this point. I think, you know, again, with, with things like AI, uh, like whoops, AI coach, you might see that changing a little bit as things get like more personalized, but as it exists today, all in all, if you're in a tough training block, your wearable is going to be telling you, you know, you should really back off here because it looks like your heart rate variability is really going down and your resting heart rate's going up and you're like, oh, I should back. But your coach is like, no, we're in a three-week training cycle. I feel like this has been my example throughout of like this <laughs> mythical three-week hard training cycle. But it is true where you are in the middle of it and it's like, you know what, actually, like the fact that your watch is giving you that, it's like the na- this uh, anti-signal that you're like, okay, good. I'm like feeling that. Um, but yeah, as you come out of it, your, your coach is telling you like, hey, you need to rest and recover. And then you're not seeing that, then that maybe is like something else to like look into. But yeah, there's points where it's, you should put the wearable aside and not look at it. And I think it's probably the most important one is when you're tapering for a race, because you don't want anything to tell you, you know what, your sleep's not good. And there's been studies after study after study that has shown you can have really terrible sleep days leading up to a race, the night before a race, it really doesn't matter, has no performance on, no impact on your performance. And you've got to like, let that be okay, because it's so hard to sleep the night before that key performance. We've all been there. Like if you're not tossing and turning (laughs) on it, you're probably like, you know, maybe you're not that excited about it. Or who knows, maybe there's there's these mythical people out there that that like sleep perfectly (laughs) the night before a key performance. Um, But yeah, those are the, the kind of key areas you got to understand where what the intent of a training cycle is and and where you should be pushing and not pushing and if your device is telling you one thing for or against that then you've got to reconcile that with what your coach is and then yeah when it comes to tapering take the thing off don't don't look at it don't don't do any of that stuff and i you know kind of generally feel that way about gps too when you're like tapering it's like <laughs> just chill out like don't don't do that just it's all done it's all there you're ready just just focus on that's good advice because it can get in your head. Ultimately, it can get in your head and it's not that useful because whether you, I mean, one of, the, one of the things I think is a mythology about HRV data, for example, is just this idea that if it's low, you shouldn't do something hard. Well, not necessarily. You know, it depends on those variables you're talking about because look, your body can perform. You know, that means your body is actually at a heightened sense of stress or alert. You know, it's ready for the fight it's ready to flight or fight. And so you can get a result with a low HRV. Oh, absolutely. I mean, look, you're, you're probably going to be a wreck. Like if you are, uh, you know, in an NFL quarterback or something like that, and you're, you're, you've got high HRV the day before a big match. Like, yeah, you should, because it's a big match. You should be like in a state of heightened stress because you gotta, you gotta be ready the next day. Yeah. You're going to war. Going, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, low, low HRV, normal. You can get your result. Now that means that you do have to recover on the other side, though. You know, you can't just then go to the next hard thing right away without coming. You know, letting that rebuild. 
Okay. So as we start to wrap this up, and I love the arc of your journey from sort of science to, you know, the practical science kind of coming together with your coaching and having to learn the balance between the art and the science and then getting back to science part, but then also in another context, learning the art and the science. So if we were to give, you know, a few key takeaways from for listeners here about running and wearables and how they use them in their training, give me two, two overarching takeaways here. I think, you know, we, we've touched on all these, so I'm, I'm not going to throw out anything new into the mix. I, I think it's important as an input to reconcile what you're expecting to have from your training plan. Like you, you really need to understand the intent of your training plan and particularly, you know, the, the phases of a training plan and going, how should I be, if I'm in a recovery phase, how should I be managing life in a recovery phase? Like that's really helpful to kind of like have some of that, but you know, don't, don't treat it as, dogma and don't don't try to replace it and don't try to like take it to your coach and use it as a point to like call your coach out for being a liar <laughs> none of that stuff is helpful you've got to ultimately kind of uh, uh trust the plan and and so you know i'd say that the directionality side of it um and and then and then two you know use it to like explore your body and what works and what doesn't work especially with things like the recovery trackers like you know, if you like to, like you're like me and you like to have a, uh, you know, a beer or a cocktail like it before bed and you're like, oh, I'm not sure how this is doing. Like, it's really helpful for the, that kind of like journey of defining what it is you need and monitoring those things there. So uh, because we're all different, we're all so, so different. And um, if you're if you're taking on a new training style or you're taking on a new uh, a form of training, whatever it might be, you're throwing weightlifting into the mix all of a sudden, like use it to explore that, or you've got a new diet, use it to explore that and, and kind of take it there. So that's kind of how I would, I would say it's like, you know, use it for exploration and then, then take it sort of directionally and not, you know, apply it dogmatically. Here, here. Love that. Yeah, no, I love it too. And I think you had brought up trusting yourself earlier, um, like kind of two questions ago and, I think it's interesting. I think people approach it dogmatically. When when we approach it dogmatically, it's usually connected to not trusting ourselves. It's almost like there's, um, I see it with nutrition plans too. Every now and then you come across an athlete that they want it spelled out 100% from their running coach of like exactly what to eat, when, where, and why. And you know that there's like a mindfulness layer or I think where I'm going here is just like there is a level of trust in yourself that it requires. It almost speaks to confidence. Um, I say it about the training plans too, that uh, when I hand an athlete a spreadsheet, it's like the spreadsheet serves you. You don't serve it. The watch serves you. You don't serve it. Have you observed that in your coaching experience? I'm fairly certain the answer is yes, but how do you speak to it? I, like I, I value how you think as much as what you think. Um, that's why you're a good friend and remained a good friend for a long time. So what would you say to it on that how to think perspective and specifically on the being able to trust yourself piece? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good point because it's way easier. It's way easier to just look at a spreadsheet 
and, and follow it like a recipe. It's way easier to take signals from a, you know, interpretive signals from a wearable and, and just follow it. The hard part is actually taking the time to, to do the work, to really like understand what your body, like we, you talk about that a lot at Rogue, it's like, listen to your body. But if you take a step back and you go like, well, what does that even mean? You're new to Rogue, like, what does it mean to listen to your body? What is my body supposed to be telling me right now? And like, that's the hard part. Like you have to ask questions. You have to come back to, to, to your coach and be like, okay, you're telling me this, but like, what am I supposed to be feeling right now? Oh, okay. It's supposed to be hard. Like, well, how hard? My legs are supposed to be hurting. Like in what way? I'm supposed to be out of breath to what degree? Like I'm tired this morning. Well, how tired, how tired does tired mean? I think that's really where it's at. It's like anything else in life of like, if you're going through, you know, therapy or you're going through whatever, like the self-work is the hard part there with it. Like, you know, the journaling's not easy. Like it takes a lot of work to do that. And um, you've got to go do that. And you've got to be willing to like lean into that. And, and once you do that, like these other things can help support it. But it's my philosophy that like we fall back onto the training plan. We fall back onto the, the wearables because it's simple. Like who doesn't want simple, but the simple is not the good part. You got to really actually learn and lean in and understand it. And be willing to make mistakes in the process. I think part of it, you know, as I've talked about on an episode about listening to your intuition is listen to your gut, listen to your intuition, make a decision, adjust based on it. And then on the other side, decide, hey, what did I learn? Did I do that right? Was that the right call? Or did I learn that that was the wrong call? And maybe I need to recalibrate my own response to these internal cues. So, and I think the same is true with what you see from your data. If something doesn't look right, it probably isn't. You know, use your intuition to trust it or not, and then learn from it on the other side. And it's an ongoing evolution. Unfortunately, all the devices are evolving in a more accurate direction but even still our best pace and distance you know pace and distance are probably the best and most accurate versions of what we can get from a device wearable as a runner and yet still it can be inaccurate so just know that and respond accordingly well this has been awesome jeff i really appreciate the the conversation the practicality of it and also just the meandering through your really, really fascinating career. And if anybody wants to be in Austin and go take Jeff out for a beer, it's even more fascinating to dig into this stuff over an adult beverage. So we'll have to do that again soon, Jeff, but thanks for coming on. It was a blast. Thanks everybody. Appreciate the time. Jeff, I want to tie, tie into the end what I started with, but uh, just like I was excited about Noah Khan and I was even worried if I'm too excited, I might get disappointed. He over-delivered. Jeff, I was excited to chat with you today. I was nervous and you over-delivered, my brother. You're the Noah Khan of the day. Oh, wow, that's too, too high a praise. I thought we were also doing a music podcast there for a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Oh, thank you, James. I appreciate it. Awesome. That. Well, thank you, Jeff. And uh, hopefully we'll see you soon. There you go. Jeff Knight on running and wearables. Thanks to him for joining us. Thanks to James for co-hosting with me. Thanks to all of you for listening. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.